Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everybody. My name's Ed Cox. I am the director of RSA's programme on people, power and place. And I'm delighted to welcome you all here for today's special event. Just before we begin, if I could ask you to check that your mobile phones are switched to silent. We're filming today's event and live streaming over the web. So um, welcome to everybody who's joining us online. And a reminder that today's hashtag is RSA Society, if you'd like to get involved in the discussion on Twitter. So housekeeping notices are over. It's great. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome our distinguished guest speaker this afternoon, Eric Kleinenberg. Eric is Professor of Sociology and Director of the Institute of Public Knowledge at New York University. His pioneering research into the power of social infrastructure, the public places that shape the way that people interact and build community, led to his appointment in 2013 as research director for President Obama's $1 billion program to rebuild the region affected by Superstorm Sandy. Eric is a multi-award-winning author of several books, including works on modern dating, living alone, and community resilience. But he joins us today to share some of the thinking from his new book, Palaces for the People, how to build a more equal and united society. And in the book and in his talk, Eric asks what I think is one of the most essential questions for the divided times that we're living in today. How do we bring people together? Through powerful human stories and insights into the science of social connection, Eric builds a strong case for the view that properly designing and maintaining our social infrastructure might be our single best strategy for a more equal and united society. Personally, I'm really interested to hear what Eric has to say because in my own neighbourhood, in Levensume in Manchester, I've been involved with the transformation of an old church into a vibrant community hub where people from a wide range of backgrounds have come together and we run special programmes for tackling loneliness, particularly amongst the elderly population. And even in our local community, um, we've been involved in an initiative to revive the Carnegie Library, which no doubt Eric will talk about Carnegie Libraries. Um, that library was a place that apparently inspired Sir Norman Foster during his childhood growing up in Manchester. So the format today is that Eric will give an opening overview of some of the book's key themes for about 20 minutes or so. And after that, um, I'll engage him in some follow-up conversation before opening out the discussion to the floor. We're looking forward to lots and lots of comments and questions before we finally wrap up at two o'clock. So we've got a packed hour ahead, and I'm very keen now that we can get started and to welcome Eric to come and share some of his thoughts. Eric. Thank you very much. Um, what a pleasure it is to be here. Let me tell you that when I decided to write a book called Palaces for the People, I had no idea I'd wind up in this room. Uh, it's just perfect. Let me just start by making sure that we all know 
how ludicrous it must be for you to receive an American at this very moment to come and tell you how to create a more united society. <laughs> if you wanted to laugh me out of the room, you probably could pull it off. Um, it's been a very hard uh, period for us, and uh, it was punctuated by this last week. And probably some of you followed the story of what happened when we, we really uh, put the absurdity into the united part of the United States of America with this hearing about whether to approve Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. I mean, it was just about our most divisive moments. And I want you to know that I'm fully aware of all the facts that are happening on the ground in the United States. Um, I'm not going to go into detail about all the things happening in my country right now. I'm just going to refer to it over the course of our day as the situation. Um, I found that it's much more healthy to just refer to it as the situation. And from what I understand, you're currently in a situation of your own as well. So, uh, Godspeed. The thing is, in some ways, it is the worst possible time to come together to talk about how we make a more equal, more united society, right? To talk about palaces for the people. Because I'm fully aware that the house is on fire, right? I, I get it. But I, I'm also here to tell you that if we spend all of our time talking about the fact that the house is on fire, and if we assemble with our friends, with our colleagues, with our family members, to say over and over again how horrible it is that the house is on fire and how horrible those other people are for, for getting it in that way. We, we will never get anywhere. I'm, I'm fully convinced of this. It, it, it seems to me now that we, we really have no choice but to change the conversation so that at a minimum we are also talking about how we build something better. We need to have some vision of what a different society would be like. And, 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 I, and I firmly believe that if we, if we don't start to have that conversation, if we don't start to put together some vision for, for a way that we can do this better, then, th then there's not much point in moving forward. So of course I think there is, there is point. And that's what I want to do today, is, is, is try to persuade you that actually now it's more important than ever that, that we start to talk about building more places like this. To do that, what I want to do is take you back to the very beginning of my time thinking about issues like this. It was uh, about 20 years ago. I was in graduate school at the University of California, Berkeley, one of the great public institutions in my home country. And there was a terrible heat wave that hit the city where I grew up, Chicago. Uh, the temperature was uh, unbearable. It stayed that way for only a couple of days. And shockingly, more than 700 people died, uh, many of them home and alone and not discovered for quite some period of time after they perished. And soon after the event, uh, social scientists went in and tried to figure out the patterns of who died and where they died and why. And some very unsurprising patterns emerged. The city is famous for its segregation and for its inequality. And sure enough, the residents of the very segregated African-American neighborhoods, places that are very poor, on the south side and the west side of Chicago were, were the, the most vulnerable. And you've all noticed that the Nobel Prizes have been given out over the last 10 days or so. No one will ever win a Nobel Prize for the observation that when there's a terrible disaster, the most vulnerable people tend to suffer the most, right? That's 
scientifically just about the least interesting thing that you could ever learn. That's, we, we know that. It's politically important to state that that happens, and it's questionable why we don't do more to protect people who are vulnerable, given that we know where they are and who they are and how to protect them. But from a scientific perspective, not super interesting. What was interesting, however, was something that I discovered by looking even more closely at what happened in Chicago that week. It turned out that there's actually great variation in the experiences between neighborhoods that proved to be very resilient uh, and neighborhoods that proved to be uh, very vulnerable. Many of them had exactly the same demographic profile. I could find in the, in the most uh, presumably dangerous places in the city people who looked like, on paper like they would be quite vulnerable. They looked identical demographically to people in adjacent neighborhoods that were the most likely to die or become very ill during this disaster. And, and what I found instead is that you could find these matched pairs of neighborhoods that were the same in almost every meaningful sense demographically, but they had these different outcomes. So what, what was driving it? It wasn't about the people who were there. And, and what I learned by spending a lot of time in different neighborhoods in Chicago is that what made the difference between a neighborhood that had a very high death rate and a neighborhood across the street that had a very low death rate was actually not the, the nature of the people. It wasn't the identity of the people. It wasn't the cultural preferences of the people. But if you spent a lot of time in neighborhoods that looked identical on paper but had very different experiences in this disaster, what you could see is that there was something on the streets and the sidewalks that made an enormous difference. There were a set of places in Chicago that proved to be catastrophically deadly. And they had this in common. They had a kind of bombed out physical ecology. A lot of abandoned homes and empty lots, many with uh, debris and tall grass. They had uh, parks that were kind of broken apart, unmaintained. The sidewalks were broken. Very little commercial activity drawing people out into public areas. Right? They had conditions of life that would make you, especially if you were older uh, and more vulnerable, they made you more likely to hunker down, stay home. And in some cases, that can be protective. But during an event like a heat wave, that turned out to be very deadly. On the other hand, in neighborhoods across the city, there were places that statistically looked like they should have had high death rates. But when you spent time in them, you realized these were actually among the most vibrant places to be. Very poor, very vulnerable areas on paper, but when you, when you walked around, you saw lively sidewalk culture. Uh, very little abandoned uh, property. Commercial activity. Branch libraries. Active community organizations, nonprofits, religious organizations. And if you live in a place like that, what happens every day is that people come out into public areas. They re interact recurrently. Sometimes it's people making plans with their neighbors or friends, but often it's just people bumping into each other and then bumping into each other often enough that the relationship turns into an association and then a friendship. And as you scale up, something more like community develops. And it turns out that if you live in a neighborhood like that in Chicago, you're not only significantly more likely to survive this heat wave as you were, but 10 times less likely to die if you live in that area. But you're also much more likely to have a long life. So if you live in a neighborhood like that in Chicago, it turns out your life expectancy 
is five years longer than if you live in a neighborhood that's got the kind of social infrastructure that I described before. Now, social infrastructure is a term that I think is more familiar to uh, people in the United Kingdom than it is in the US, although I mean it in a slightly different way in my book than uh, people have used it even here in the past. I came to think of the differences between the neighborhoods that were resilient and the neighborhoods that were vulnerable in Chicago as differences involving the social infrastructure. And that's really the key idea that organizes this book. By social infrastructure, I mean the physical places and the organizations that shape our interactions. It's a very simple concept, actually, the physical places that shape our interactions. And when the, when the social infrastructure is robust, when we invest in it, when we take care of it, it makes us all the more likely to have positive and recurring interactions with people around us, planned or unplanned. It makes it all the more likely that what will develop in the place where we live and spend time is something that feels like a collective project. Right? We'll be more likely to enjoy spending time with each other, to spend time with each other. And yes, in a disaster, it makes us more likely to know who's vulnerable right, and whose door we need to knock on. But it has all kinds of benefits every day. At the same time, when we neglect the social infrastructure, if we fail to make necessary investments, we let things fall apart. We close down our schools or our libraries, we neglect our, our sidewalks and streets, we become all the more likely to grow isolated, atomized. Things don't feel right. And it's my contention that in the country I live in, and in yours as well, we have neglected the social infrastructure over these last decades. And we've done it to our peril. And so, of course, the kinds of issues that we face now are not simply issues about climate change and natural disasters, although we have more and more of those as well, of course. But they're really issues about the, the whole thing falling apart, right? Because we have become more atomized and divided and polarized. And it's a trend that we desperately need to do something about. After I moved away from uh, Berkeley and finished my studies. I wrote this book about the heat wave. I lived for sh in Chicago for a time. I, I moved to New York City. And as some of you know, several years ago, uh, New York City experienced its own extreme event, uh, a disaster called Sandy. It was a hurricane that became a, something like a superstorm. And after the um, event happened, uh, my university had lost power. And we were forced to, out of campus for about 10 days. And when the university reopened, I came back to this institute that I run called the Institute for Public Knowledge. And I uh, asked for every faculty member and graduate student or undergraduate student in the university who wanted to do something about, about this event, who wanted to understand what had happened, who wanted to process what it means to live in a, a city facing 21st century challenges to come together and do something. And we started organizing research projects and events. I started writing a lot about it. And uh, out of the blue, one day I got a call from a member of the Obama administration asking me if I would be interested in becoming the research director for this thing called Rebuild by Design. It turned out into a big international design competition meant to uh, help the region affected by this disaster build 21st century infrastructure. And I insisted as, uh, in my role as, as a research director that when teams thought about how to 
get New York City ready for the 21st century, that they not only think about you know, water management systems and seawalls and things of that nature, but they also make sure that they considered the social infrastructure as well, because you can do so much more with it. If you build a hard infrastructure project, like a seawall, for instance, you can, you can just have a tall vertical structure that blocks the water from coming in, right? That's, we have this thing people say in our country, build a wall. You know that expression, build a wall? And, and the problem with building a wall is it, it, it doesn't work for people, but it also doesn't work for water. And if we try to build simple, civil, uh, simple walls, which are kind of the, the simplest infrastructure we can build, uh, we run the risk of doing much more harm than good. And so what I told the design teams as we got into the early stages of our competition is, try to blow up that idea of a wall. Yes, you maybe need to stop the water from coming into a place that's vulnerable, but think of the other things that a wall can do. And in fact, many of the designs that came out of this project involve blowing up a concept of a seawall so that on the Lower East Side of New York City, for instance, where uh, the Danish architect Bjarke Ingels won one of the prizes from this competition uh, to build a new climate security system, uh, what's, what could have been a wall is now something he calls a bridging berm. And the land that needs to be protected from, from storm surge will now function like a barrier, but it's a slope, a long slope, one that goes for a few miles. And on that slope is a new recreational area, a park. There are more trees, uh, a bike lane, uh, walking paths. Uh, I'll show you pictures some other time, I promise. Um, they're in the book. That was a crude sales pitch. I didn't mean it that way. But you should look for them. It's, the, the project's called the, it was called the Big U to refer to a, the system that would guard the lower parts of Manhattan from a storm. But the idea was that we can build infrastructure that, that serves the function of traditional hard infrastructure, but also includes social infrastructure that makes everyone's life better all the time. Now, one day when I was showing a bunch of teams around New York. My, my job was to kind of show them various needs and vulnerabilities and, and possibilities in the area. I had this team of truly world-class uh, architects and designers come up to me and say, Eric, we have this amazing idea for the design that we want to, to propose for the competition. Uh, we're calling it a resilience center. And I said, a resilience center, that sounds like an amazing thing. Tell, tell me about your resilience center. And they said, okay, here's this idea. We are going to build a, a structure. We're going to design a new structure. And we're going, to, we're going to experiment in this one city. But the idea is that we're going to scale it up. And it could be in every neighborhood, not just in this city, but in cities around the country. Because wh what place doesn't need a resilience structure to bring us together? And, and they said, the way it's going to work is it's going to, it's going to be uh, aggressively accessible. You know, we're going to make sure that everyone knows that they're welcome in this facility. The doors will be open as much as possible. And we're going to program it. It's not just going to be a physical place. It's going to be a program facility. And whether you're a very young person, or you're a parent or middle-aged person, or an older person, you're going to know that there's something in this resilience center that's here for you. you know, we're going to have staff that does programming catered to the needs of people in our community. You know, Because it's a resilience center and our job is going to be to connect people together, we're going to make sure that we have great communications infrastructure, you know, so we'll have machines there. You'll be able to get Wi-Fi access. And, and we mean resilience to, to say we're going to help people get through hard times. So 
you know, we're going to make sure that people feel comfortable there all the time and we'll have some flexible space and you can do actually a lot of different kinds of programs there. And I said, that's a brilliant idea. Um, I love this concept. Have you ever been to a library? <laughs> and it turns out that this group, like so many of us these days, had kind of forgotten about the library, right? Because in, in the minds of many of us these days, you know, armed with our, our smartphones and equipped with a internet access that can get us so much information so quickly, I think many of us have forgotten about all the things that we built into our libraries. And so, in fact, you know, what I decided to do is take them to some, some libraries in New York City that were doing a great number of things that they described all the time with buildings that already existed. And because in New York we have many of the Carnegie libraries that I know you have here in the United Kingdom as well, I thought I'd show them these palaces for the people. After all, the concept comes from Carnegie. That's his idea of what libraries should be. And it turns out that um, branch libraries in the United States, uh, while being dismissed by uh, many of the people who run the country and who run our governments and who lead our philanthropies and lead our big businesses, uh, remain active, vital, dynamic institutions that are doing all these things all the time. And recently I published a photo essay of a day in the life of one of my favorite libraries on the Lower East Side of New York City. And you can see this kind of extraordinary parade of humanity that comes through the library that sees it as a resilient center all the time. So whether it's early literacy uh, for our youngest children or uh, bilingual or multilingual story times for members of a diverse society who might otherwise be segregated but come together in public institutions or uh, after-school programs for young people who can use the library to stay safe and to do work or uh, reading programs for and book clubs for older people who might otherwise be isolated and alone. Uh, libraries are doing all these amazing things. Um, and, and the team was really amazed to see this, right? But unfortunately, there are those of us who kind of appreciate the things that libraries do as social infrastructure, and there are many of us who do not. And so, periodically, you get, as we got in the United States this summer, uh, an essay appears. Uh, in the summer in the US, it was from an economist writing in Forbes magazine. And the economist said, the library is obsolete. You know, we, we no longer need this old institution. Um, in fact, wouldn't we be better off if we just knocked down the library and replaced it with Amazon stores, right? Because everybody loves Amazon. You know, it's, it's, it's part of the market. We love markets. It involves technology. We love technology, right? It, it gives you as the customer the things you need. He said, show me the cost-benefit analysis that cashes out the value of the library, and I will end this call. You know? But otherwise, let's, let's get rid of this. Let's get rid of this thing. Now, it was, it was a kind of an amazing essay, but in some ways, it, I guess it didn't surprise me. Um, I, I ask you to consider this thought experiment. Imagine that we had no such thing as the library. The library does not exist. And, and someone came to you and said, I have this great idea for an institution. The way it's going to work is that by virtue of your humanity, it will 
give you access to your, our shared cultural heritage. By the way, we'll give that to you for free. It will ask nothing of you. Um, it, will, it will be there for you, doors open, uh, regardless of your age or your social class, your race or ethnicity. Uh, your citizenship status doesn't matter either. It's, it, it's, it's here for you. Right? If you introduce this in the American Congress today, you would be laughed out of the room for sure. Right? It's, that idea is so out of sync with who we have become and what we do. So I guess it should not have surprised me that Forbes magazine published an article like this. But I will tell you that um, I was cheered to see uh, that so many people wrote so quickly to denounce this piece, the librarians of the world united for sure, that Forbes had to take the thing down 36 hours later. They were shamefaced and embarrassed. Now, unfortunately, that, that, that hasn't kept city governments around the United States from closing down branch libraries. Unfortunately, that has not led the great philanthropists of our country to make the kinds of investments in social infrastructure like libraries that Carnegie once did. But as you surely know, Carnegie was not just a philanthropist. He did some pretty nasty and brutish things on the side, right? This is a man who uh, was violent and cruel towards his workers. He hired the Pinkertons to come and beat them up when they went on strike. Um, one of the great uh, uh, entrepreneurs and, and wealthiest men of his age, um, he had a decidedly mixed record. But it's the philanthropic contribution today that I want to call attention to, not to dismiss the significance of treating laborers badly. We need to tell that story as well. Um, but it's important that he also took the time to build palaces. And it's something that I don't see us doing often enough today. Now, I want to close by telling you I don't think that the philanthropic sector is going to save us from this. As wonderful a thing as it is to have Carnegie libraries, they're insufficient to deal with the range and the scale of problems that we face. And the bad news is we are where we are. It is a polarized and divided time. Right? We have enormous amounts of work to do. The good news is that it's now inevitable that in the coming decades, we will be spending billions and hundreds of billions and ultimately trillions of dollars. The, the World Bank estimates that we will need to spend trillions of dollars per year globally to keep up with demands for our new infrastructure because the truth is that the infrastructure that we live with today is woefully out of date. It, it, it's, it's clearly inadequate to meet the needs of our contemporary societies. And that would be true even if it were not for the fact that the sea levels will be rising. We learned last night that we've already baked in one and a half degrees of warming. Right? We, we are functionally going to be living on a different planet over time, and we will have no choice but to make a massive investment in infrastructure. So we do have a choice of how we do it. And the real reason I wrote this book is because I think there's two things that we could all agree on, almost regardless of where we stand socially or politically today. And one is that our infrastructure is broken, our systems don't work anymore, they need to be updated if we're going to keep things going. 
But the other is that society is broken. The, the societies that we've built with great work, with great purpose, with great struggle to come up with some sense of a common purpose. Our societies are breaking down. And now I think desperately, desperately, we need to find some way to come together and build some vision of what we'll do. So let me end here before, Ed, you come back and join me in conversation. I will grant that I can be a pretty naive guy. There's a lot about the world that I don't know. I hope I don't come across as painfully naive. I really am aware of um, the situation, right? We're all aware of the situation. And so I don't know that um, the most burning thing on your mind today will be figuring out how to rebuild. You probably are angry about some other things. There's maybe some other fight you want to have. Certainly the case for most of the people I spend my days with. But tomorrow, we better sit down together and find some way to move forward. We, we better find that path. And, and it's my hope that a concept like social infrastructure and the kind of program that I lay out in Palaces for the People gives you a set of options and ideas that you might not already have. So thank you very much. So thanks so much, Eric, for um, those uh, inspiring, I think, uh, introductory comments. And certainly, um, it's great that um, you're talking the language of social infrastructure, which is something that the RSA has pushed through our Inclusive Growth Commission and in, in different ways um, over the past, goodness knows, um, 18 months to two years. But I wondered whether you might just elaborate a little bit more about different types of social infrastructure. You've talked about libraries, you've talked about the kind of flood defences or, or storm defences in terms of Hurricane Sandy. Um, but in the book, there's, there's, there, are, there, are, there, are different, there are other different types. And, and perhaps in doing so, to say a little bit more about what I might call grey spaces, because many of them are, if you like, publicly owned, but you also talk about some of the private spaces that can also be used to help social mixing as, as well. And I just wondered whether there's some kind of hierarchy in your mind in these, these different spaces. Yeah, it, 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 there are different kinds of, of um, social infrastructures. Of course, uh, I, I focus here on the public ones because in some way we have more democratic capacity to call for them. And in my country, at least, you know, we, we don't even have the collective imagination to to see the possibility of doing it. So you know, we have a lot of work to do there. There's a world of, so, of vital social infrastructures that come from both the nonprofit sector um, and that come from the private sector. So in the nonprofit sector, uh, very much the case that uh, local community organizations, uh, the, the YMCAs are kind of uh, sports facilities that do so much community programming, play an outsized role in many neighborhoods uh, you know, in, the, in the US. Uh, religious organizations uh, have anchored many communities. In fact, the, the chapter in this book that deals with climate change begins with a story of uh, a church, an evangelical church in Houston, Texas, uh, that faced this very pivotal moment about 30 years ago. A lot of the uh, white members of the church were moving out of the neighborhood, and 
uh, about eight of the 10 board members said that they wanted to move the church as well so that it could kind of relocate and be close to its, its congregants. But a couple of recalcitrant members refused to do that, and they said, no, the church is here, and it's the church's job to adapt to the new situation on the ground, and we should be uh, recruiting you know, new parishioners uh, from the new ethnic groups that have moved in. And so they decided to do that. So the church is very committed to having a multi, uh, multiracial base. And um, when the hurricane hit and overwhelmed the capacity of uh, most of the local actors, the church mounted this extraordinary emergency response. And what was impressive to me about the response is that, well, at first it went uh, to members who reached out to one another through the social network the church created, but when they went out into the neighborhood to try to rebuild people's houses or, or you know, just help, help uh, deal with uh, the flooded mess, they recognized that a lot of people didn't belong to the church and were still there in need of help, and they reached out to them on the basis of their shared humanity. So here's an, an example of a, a, a religious nonprofit organization that uh, you know, truly did community outreach. Mm -hmm. The private sector, I should say, plays a, can play a very special role as well. Um, in, the, in the history of writing about cities, these so-called third places like, uh, well, the pub is the classic one in, in, in your context, and I understand the pub is also uh, threatened as an institution from, the, from kind of the rise of big change and, th and things like that. Um, barber shops and, and salons in the, in the United States have played a big role. And, and the only hesitation I have about the private sector's role in this is that I don't know if this video uh, of two African-American men being arrested in a Starbucks in Philadelphia made its way across the sea. Do you know what I'm talking about? A lot of you do. So the thing about a... So, so there's been some you know, celebration of the fact that the cafe culture finally made it to the United States. You know, the people have learned to, to, to sit in these, in these you know, nice little shops. And... And on the one hand, uh, a commercial eatery it can be a nice social infrastructure, but it has to be accessible and welcoming. And for too many people in the United States, um, and especially in gentrifying neighborhoods, yes. and I know that's another thing you have a lot of here, gentrifying neighborhoods, um, a, a commercial eatery can prove to be very inaccessible to people who need a place to belong. And that can be very simple, like in terms of the messaging, you know, the, the certain decor and certain pricing that can make it clear that some people are welcome and others are not. Mm -hmm. And it can be very hard-edged, as it was in Philadelphia, where you know, two African-American men were arrested because they were waiting for a friend who was a little bit late showing up mm -hmm. to a Starbucks. Um, and so if the private sector is going to be social infrastructure, it has to be open and accessible. Sure. And in the book, you also talk about the role of technology and social media. And I guess many people might respond to uh, your call, if you like, for greater social mixing by saying, well, these days we mix more than ever before but through things like Facebook and, and so on. Yet you've got some hard words for, 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 for them. Do you want to say well, a bit about that? Well, let me say, first of all, that I am as hooked on these things as the next guy. Uh, anyone else here carrying a phone in their pocket today? I mean, it... They're very alluring, right? And, and it's true, you know, with social media, we can be in touch with all kinds of people uh, at all hours of the day. When I wrote this modern romance book with the comedian Aziz Ansari, we, we talked about carrying a phone as like having a 24-7 singles bar in your pocket. 
be very hard to focus with all that. But the thing is that um, you know, social media really only become helpful in most cases when they help you consummate a face-to-face -face interaction with a living person in real life. It's not universally true. I mean, if you're a, a gay, lesbian child in a small town and you feel isolated, social media can be very helpful for you if you have a rare disease uh, and are trying to learn about your condition. The internet does for you what no face-to-face -face network could ever do. I appreciate those contributions. But for most of us, if we, if we just have kind of friends on Facebook and followers on Twitter, Instagram, that's an unsatisfying way to be in the world. And I'll tell you something, the people who understand the power of in real life social infrastructure more than anyone else are the people who own the biggest social media companies. And, and I, I, if you've never been to Silicon Valley, I invite you all to go visit Mark Zuckerberg and his place of work someday. Because if you go to the Facebook campus in Menlo Park, or the Googleplex in Mountain View, or the Apple campus in Cupertino, you will find some of the places that have seen the largest investments in social infrastructure on the planet. These are workers' paradise, right? They, they are gl glorious campuses with you know, a little private space for working, but all kind of shared facilities. You know. Uh, cafeterias that will give you like free smoothies on demand, um, you know, outdoor exercise classes, bike paths, uh, football pitches. Uh, everything is designed to help employees of these companies interact in real life. They do these things they call serendipitous encounters. We have a concept for it, a trendy buzzword concept for it, right? Serendipitous encounters, which, which do so much to promote productivity and innovation, and also to make people like where they work even more. And if you own a tech firm, you have to do this because it's a very competitive labor market. So all these guys are trying to figure out how you get people to commit to the place of work. And you do it by creating environments that foster relationships. And so when Zuckerberg writes, as he did after the 2016 election in the US, Facebook is going to be the social infrastructure for the 21st century you should ask him to look where he lives. Well, I'm not sure whether that's a brilliant um, uh, advertisement or not, but the fact for the fact that the RSA is going to be opening its new coffee house downstairs <laughs> very soon, but, and that is a much more yeah. open access place where yeah. people can come and mix and share ideas. But it's precisely along the lines that uh, I think you're, you're arguing for, and it's in the RSA's tradition as to how uh, people have mixed and shared ideas and innovation right. and, and, and so on. I fully support the uh, coffee house I'm happy to do commercials. Uh. <laughs> but the point I want to move to now is to open it up to everybody so that we can all get, uh, get, our, get our questions in. There's a few hands going up. If you can just wait till a microphone comes to you, please, um, and, then, uh, and then ask your question. Keep your questions nice and short so we can get plenty of people in, please. Yeah. Hello, yeah, my name's John Ford. I'm a retired teacher. Um, thank you for your contribution. I was very puzzled by your remark that we have... Um, uh, uh, um, ignored social infrastructure. Um, actually, in this country, there has been a sustained assault on social resource by the government in education, in health, in housing, in the prisons, in the police service, you name it, the criminal justice system. We've had speakers here over the last two years on all of those topics. 
This hasn't mysteriously dropped out of the sky because we forgot about it. It's a conscious political strategy against the kind of social resources that you, you were talking about. And for me, this is not a question of left versus right. It's a question of civic order being undermined by the free market. Okay, great. The, the, free, the, the, free, the free market that is, not, is, is free for the rich and powerful, but not for the poorly paid and the vulnerable. So my question is, how, how, can, we, how can we deal with social, social infrastructure if we don't deal with those agencies that consciously undermine that social order? Yeah. I, think, Thank I you. think it's a, a, a fair point. Uh, and let me just give you one example. I think, I think we need to have um, a, a better story about what it is that social infrastructure can do and why we need it. And I also think we need to have better evidence uh, to, to make the case. So let me give you a quick example because I know there's a, many other questions. Uh, there's a chapter in my book that deals with the case of crime. Now, the U.S. really pioneered uh, this style of policing that has hit England very hard and hit Europe as well. Uh, zero tolerance policing, stop and frisk policing. Um, it stems from this broken windows theory uh, which said if you have disorder in a neighborhood that people will perceive it to be a sign that no one's in control and you can get away with murder. And the response to that should be to throw more police officers at places that are derelict uh, so that no one can get away with anything. And the question I raise in the book is, what if we had reacted to the broken windows problem by fixing the windows? And it turns out that a bunch of researchers have recently taken up this question systematically. There's an experiment that I write about, and I'm just going to invite you to look at this chapter of the book, uh, where for more than a decade now, uh, the city of Philadelphia has been working with these scientists and also a horticultural society to treat a random set of some of the 50,000 abandoned properties in this city. And they spend a few hundred dollars to fix up an empty lot or an abandoned building, and they compare what happens in the places they treat with what happens in the places that they leave uh, abandoned. And the extraordinary finding, which is now held up in the best scientific research journals over the course of a decade, is that when you treat an abandoned building and fix it up so that it can't be a place that attracts crime, you get a 39% reduction in gun crimes. You get, you get dramatic reductions in violent crime when you fix up places um, which means you don't necessarily have to arrest so many people and do criminal justice in, in this way. Last thing I'll say about this is it turns out also to have an extraordinary health effect because when you fix up a broken place, what happens is that people walking by it don't feel as nervous and stressed. So they hooked up uh, residents to heart rate monitors and found that residents who are familiar with the place when they walk by an untreated abandoned place experience a dramatic spike in their heart rate, which means their stress is, is going, right? Which explains a lot of the stress-related illnesses that we see in those neighborhoods. Whereas once you fix it, their heart rate hardly works at all. So what I hope the book does, sir, is provide you with some ammunition so you can make that case. This lady here. Hello. Um, I'd like to start off by saying very briefly, I think what we're in now um, reflects very much um, on Pastor Nimola's poem. And when I say that, I mean there's an eth ethnocentric approach um, to problem solving um, with things. Um, I've lived in the States, and I can see the segregations that are divided by railway lines, 
motorways, etc. Yet, when um, people go in to make things better, they, it's not the people of the neighborhoods who are contributing. It's people who, like the Google campus, come, who are fortunate enough and come in and say, this is what we need to do. We ne I think we need more intersectionality, more experiences and we, uh, of other cultures and how people live if we're really going to make the world go forward. Otherwise, we're going to keep saying, oh, look at what's happening. Things are really bad in the West, but Africa's GDP is growing at 4%. Mm. Uh, the youth are, make, um, uh, are, are intersecting all across the world. And also, more, if in the capitalist sense, more millennials are being made because there's greater intersectionality, and I think we could benefit from that in the West. Thank you. There's a whole chapter in your book on, on social cohesion and, and, and ethnicity and diversity and how those things come, come together. Very, very much so, and I guess I, I, I thank you for that. And, and the brief response I'll give you is that when I was directing this, uh, the research director for this Rebuild by Design competition, the, the, the thing we instituted into the process is that no design teams could come into a neighborhood and prescribe for them a solution to whatever problems they had from on high. We had a nine-month process that involved research and outreach and then collaborative design before a design could be submitted to the jury. So you, so you did not win this design competition by submitting a proposal out of thin air. At the beginning, there was a nine-month gestation period that had to have extensive research and participation. And I don't think that we'll get good infrastructure from the top down. This can't be a conversation that's just generated by engineers. The only way you do social infrastructure intelligently is by paying attention to how people live and listening to what people want. So thank you. I'm going to gather two or three questions now because I can see lots of people wanting to speak. So yes, please, at the back there. And then there's a couple of questions down here. Eric, you seem to be implying that we need some kind of travesty, some really awful circumstances before we can build social infrastructure. I'm thinking of, say, for example, the Industrial Revolution in Manchester and London, where things were really bad before they improved. Is that the case? Do we have a lot more bad things to look forward to before the infrastructure you speak about can on, be built? Hang on to that. Hang on to that. Thank you very much. Nice short question. Great. Hi. Over here. <clears throat> Hello. Hi. Um, my name is Jane Wells. Um, I work at a public institution, uh, Tate Modern, uh, where I run a program um, that is a little bit like this resilience centre, actually, that you talk about. Um, it's called Tate Exchange. And um, most recently, we've been working with an artist called Tanya Bruguera and um, a group of local people to Tate Modern, so people from SE1, who are not a community because they did not know each other before we started working with them about eight months ago. Mm. Um, and the group have taken a number of actions in the institution. One is to rename one of the buildings after a local activist and um, to reflect some of the values that they lay out in a manifesto. One of the lines in the manifesto is when words and thoughts are not enough, action must become our common language. And so something that we're asking people this month is for one simple action that they can take mm. um, to be a better neighbor, to build a more equal and united society. And so I was wondering if you have an example of one simple action that people can do today, anyone can do it, to make um, a better neighborhood. Yeah, and we'll come to one, one more question here, please, yeah. Quick question, my name is George Kiss, I'm a fellow. I have three library cards. One is here, that is currently closed for the um, reformation. The second one is the British Library, which is the best library in the world, probably, as far as I know. 
And the third one is my local library, who meets all the objectives that you describe and has zero budget to do it. So it has a beautiful building, it's called Idea Store in, in, in East London. They have everything that you could expect except central money sure. from budget. Sure. So, Eric, can, can I just embellish on these sure. questions a little bit? Um, so crises, do you need a crisis? Yeah to get social infrastructure going, um, shared action one. And, and I was, when I read the book, I thought there's quite a lot of emphasis on places, and yet in the stories you tell, it's actual individual actions within those places. So the relationship between people, excellent people doing excellent jobs and those places. And then, and then lastly, how do we pay for this stuff when our libraries are, are particularly challenged in the UK at the moment? Yeah. I think we've hit, I think we're in the crisis. I think we're in the crisis. I mean, I, so I think there are more crises coming. And, and I think yeah, a lot of my work is trying to figure out how to deal with climate change. Um, and unfortunately, it will pound us as it has been pounding the Americas for some time now, recurrently. Um, but I think we're in the crisis. The crisis is Brexit. You know, the crisis is Trump. The, 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 the crisis, and, and that's just in the US and the UK. I, I, I think we're in a reckoning moment and, and, a, and a pivot, potentially a pivot moment as well. Um, I don't see that we sustain ourselves without making some significant decision about how, how to organize or reorganize society. And it's very possible, as the gentleman in the back says, that, that, that my vision loses because there has been a sustained assault, a sustained assault on social infrastructure and on the notion that there's a public realm and a public set of public goods that needs to be supported by the public through democracy and through the state. But, but I think that that vision needs to be rearticulated and defended. And, and to be honest, I think that the majority of people want that restored. And, and want to rebuild that. What I observe, my, you know, the American title of my book ends with the decline of civic life. But I, what I observe in my country right now is an incredible resurgence of, of, civil, of civic life. And so it's you know, maybe somewhat different than the Industrial Revolution, but I think we are in a moment of crisis right now. I think we will look back at this period later in history and see it as a pivot point. And the question is which direction we go in. Uh, yeah. is, is it about action or is it about places? I, I mean, I'm trying to think of some way to combine it with this last point about you know, the library. We have the buildings, but we don't have the funding now. And I, and I guess I'll, I'll, I'll try to massage them this way. It's, it, it is, I want to be clear about something. The, the point of my book is not if we build these places, we will solve all of our problems. I think that it's, it's not quite that simple. And, for, and first thing I'll say is that um, if you build a library, you also need to program it and staff it, right? I mean, so if you build a, a park, you also need to maintain it because a library that's sh shut down most of the time will not serve its function. If you don't maintain a park or any pu public space, it will fall apart and will become more dangerous, right? Which is what happened in the United States during the 1970s. You know, a, a, a quick narrative, a quick anecdote. The other day, um, an Amazon store opened in my neighborhood in New York City. And I have a nine-year-old daughter. And I wanted to show her what makes a library so great. 
and I wanted to explain to her what it means to have culture and belonging and, and, and something that's free and given to you. And I thought the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to take her first to the Amazon store so she can see kind of hyper-commercialism. And then I'm going to walk her across the street to the local library. And we went to the Amazon store. And it was, you know, like a cornucopia of consumerism, right? Everything was there. Very few books, by the way, in the Amazon store. Um, all kinds of, you know, toys and games and a madhouse. And, you know, she, I, she said, I want this, Dad, and I want this, and I want this. And the price tag was, you know, nearly $1,000 of the things that she wanted. I didn't get her any of those things. But, but she felt like she wanted. And I, and I called attention to that. And I said, OK, now we're going to go to the library. I was so excited to demonstrate this difference. And we got to the library, and it was closed. <laughs> and it was closed because it was a Sunday. And I should have thought about that, that you know, libraries aren't open in New York City on Sundays anymore. But why? Sunday should be prime time for the library, right? It's the, it's the day when the family is together, when you're looking for something to do when you have children. When, like, if the libraries were open on Sunday, we would come to appreciate them more. They would, they would serve their function. We haven't cut the library funding altogether. But when we slash the funding for it, when we think of a library as a luxury good and not as vital infrastructure, then of course we cut it. Of course we close it on Sunday. So part of it is, you know, so I can't give you the cost-benefit analysis that shows you that keeping a library open more hours results in you know, better literacy or less juvenile delinquency or happier families. I haven't done that research. I don't know that that research can be done. But you tell a story yeah. in your book about Columbus, Ohio, and how when they put it to the people to have some additional taxation, they decided that that was a price worth paying? So that's, that's, what I would, that, that's where I would go. I think there are many communities now when given the chance uh, Will, will even tax themselves, which is anathema to most American voters. And We're voting to tax themselves to get some of these resources back. And if you go around to, like, to American suburbs, American suburbs, these idyllic places that people think they're places where no one really wants to contribute to the public. We think of them as, as zones of domesticity and privacy. But what makes American suburbs so appealing to affluent people is precisely their social infrastructure. The ball fields, the parks, the school grounds, the campuses, the libraries, they are the best in the world. They are extraordinary places. And here's a group of people who've come together and they've quietly taxed themselves so that they can share it in these special places. They don't want to share them with other people, <laughs> but they do want to share them with their neighbors. And so I think it's worth paying attention to that. I owe you an answer on what's the one thing you can do. And I'm going to punt in the following way. There isn't really one thing to do. It's not like there is one script for the thing that you can do. But, but each of you lives in some place. Each of you belongs to some community. Each of you has a set of people you talk to. And I guess the simplest thing I could say for you know, what, is that, what, what is there to be done is that, and try this maybe for the next 24 hours. People will come to you and they'll want to talk about that horrible thing that Trump just did or that May just did. Or, there's so much bad news. There's so much to be angry about. There's so much to be fearful of. There's so much to complain about. And the next time you're at a dinner party or a conversation with someone, and the conversation turns towards the situation, <laughs> turn it in the other direction. The most basic thing we can do is start to talk about, well, what is, what is something that we can seize upon 
something that we can build. And one thing I want to tell you about the book is that it's not a fantasy book, you know, set in a distant utopia. What, what, I, what I'm doing in the book is reporting on places around the world where communities at the neighborhood level or the na national level have made these investments, you know, and, and created better places, the kinds of places that we all want to live in. The, it, the, and the thing is that they are right there for you. And, and I will tell you that the, the way you have to understand this book, which was written in the aftermath of Trump's election, which for me was a horrible and dark thing, is that every day that I wanted to give up, I would walk into a, a library you know, and find sources of hope that I did not expect to be there. And so some people I've noticed, you know, I've read a few of the British reviews of my book, and everyone's saying it's an optimistic book. For me, it's not an optimistic book. I'm as dour as anyone else. But it's, it's optimistic only in the two following senses. One, it's not just the complaint that is making us all so exhausted and miserable and hopeless every day. I'm, I'm done with that complaint. It's not getting us anywhere. And, and the second thing is, it tries to seize on and call attention to the things in the world that are going right, that are there for us, that we could build on. I might not be optimistic that we're going to do that tomorrow, but I, I firmly believe that if we have any hope of doing better, this has to be the first step. Well, on that, I think we should finish because I think that is an optimistic note to finish, however you want to, uh, <laughs> to define it. And thank you so much for your contribution, for your um, excellent questions, everybody um, as well. I'm really sorry to those that I haven't been able to take questions from. Eric is going to hang around uh, for a little bit to uh, sign books. So if you do want to ask Eric some questions, then um, please do that. I'll hang around too. If anybody wants to come and talk to me about our emerging program on people, place and power, I'd be um, absolutely delighted to uh, talk to you about some of that. But the last thing that I need to do now is just to ask you to all join me in thanking um, Eric for his uh, excellent contribution. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.